All right, let's welcome to Pastor John as he preaches the word tonight. All right. I hope you were very blessed by those testimonies. That, yeah, the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. And these testimonies are gifts to the church that God has given each and every one of these team members to go and bless the body, to bless the people in their workplace, to bless the people in their schools, to release the power of Jesus as they do this. And hopefully that puts in you a hunger and a thirst to be on missions with New Philly. For those of you who have never been, uh, hopefully this, this gives you uh, a sincere desire to, uh, to go experience the same things, to be used in the same ways. And it puts in me uh, a jealousy to be on missions too. I've missed the last two mission seasons. And I will be on missions, Lord willing, bar whatever uh, God may bring. But I will be on missions with my wife, Anita, this summer. And we are so looking forward to it because God is leading us from glory to glory to glory, ever-increasing glory. And uh, I'm just going to pray briefly and then get into a word here for tonight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, for these testimonies. We pray, Lord, that you would stir in our heart, God, warmth, God, in your presence, God, for your goodness, God, for your love, God, as, as you release that through the testimonies from just now, God, as you release it through the presence, God, that you brought into this room through the time of praise, God, and the time of prayer, God, we ask, Lord, that you would awaken and stir up our hearts, God, to your truth from your word tonight, God, that no person would leave this place unchanged or untouched, Father but that you would stir within us, God, your truth, God, your goodness and your love, God, your commitments and your devotion to us and for us, Father. We bless your name. We thank you for this time. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, as I was preparing for tonight, what I, what I simply felt the Lord's heart is for us tonight is for him, for us to know that God is for us, that God is on our side, that God is committed to us and that God is setting us up for victory in every area of our life. We're about a month through this year of increase and, and this is my first opportunity to preach to the house in this year of increase. And, and one thing, probably the most important thing that I'm learning so far in this year of increase, what God keeps whispering to me over and over again as I spend time with him, as, as I spend time in his word and time in, in, in worship, time in his presence, is simply that he is setting me up for victory. And that he is setting you up for victory. And he is setting this house up for victory. He is always setting his people up for victory. Regardless of what you're going through, what your situation is, what your circumstance is, God's heart is for victory in your life, for victory through your life. God is, whatever it is, God is setting you up. I want to direct us tonight to Romans 8, just to emphasize this. Turn your Bibles to Romans 8. Romans 8, chapter 8, familiar passage.
Romans 8. We're going to look at verses 28 to 32, some of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. The Apostle Paul says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? going to stop there. If God is for you, who can be against you? The assumption that the Apostle Paul is speaking out of here is that God is for you. That Almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth and everything you see and touch and taste and feel, this God, Almighty God, is for you. He is with you. He is on your side. He is in your corner. God is for you. And in verse 28, very well-known verse in all things God works for the good of those who love him who are called according to his purpose in all things and sometimes I wonder if we really take this verse seriously do we really believe that in all things in everything in every situation God is working for our good but this is the truth of the word of God that the Apostle Paul is trying to drive home here after an incredible eight chapters, seven chapters through the book of Romans, going through doctrine after doctrine and a history of the, uh, the human race in regard to sin and redemption. He drives home God's goodness and his commitment by saying, you know, if, if God who did not spare his own son, if he didn't spare his own son for us, what else wouldn't he give us? If he would go to the full extent of love and give what was most precious to him to prove his love for us, how could we ever doubt that he is completely for us, completely on our side, completely with us? God is for us. Beloved, God will not waste one thing in your life. There is not one thing that you go through, not one situation you will ever go through in your life, whether that is an encouraging time, whether that is a difficult time, whether that's an embarrassing time, whether that's a trying time, God will not waste one thing. He uses everything that happens to you for your blessing, for your good, to set you up for victory. I'm going to use an analogy here. I'm not sure, if, I'm not sure how it'll fly, but I'm going to try it because it blesses me. And so we're going to see. It's a little bit like Native Americans. Okay? Now, stick with me. When I was growing up in elementary school, in social studies class, I learned about how Native Americans used to kill and use animals. Okay? Now, ignorant white people 
will go and they will kill animals and they will use them. I'm sorry, I apologize to other white. I'm white, so I feel like I can say that. Uh, ignorant white people will go and they will, they will kill animals and they will, they will basically use none of it. I mean, some, some white people will go and they'll just hunt for sport, right? And they'll just, you know, because it's fun, they'll go out and they will kill an animal because that was a challenge for them and they feel like they could conquer the beast and they did that and now they feel good about themselves. Some people, some less ignorant white people will actually use that animal for food. You know, they'll, they'll kill a deer with bow or, or gun or whatever it might be and uh, they, will, they will use the meat and they'll feed their family or whatever else it might be. But Native Americans... They weren't like that. They understood that there was so much value, even in, in animal life, for any of it to be wasted. And I just want to read this. Uh, I just thought this was so neat. Uh, how much they, they really used in animals. Uh, traditionally, with, with buffalo, because buffalo roamed many years ago in North America, in Canada. And uh, not so much anymore because of ignorant white people. Uh, and how they killed them. But this is just, just to give you a sense for this. Now, it wasn't just food. It says, uh, the source that I found says, American Indians use buffalo not only for food, but also for many other resources. Some of these were, the hooves made great pots. Yeah. The horns made wonderful spoons. The bones were made into war clubs and scrapers. The skins of an old bull was used to make shields and winter moccasins. The skins of a young calf was used to make underclothes and tobacco pouches. The fat was used as soap. The tongue was used as a hairbrush. Hey, I guess it worked. Uh, their sinews were used for strings and backs to the, to the American Indians' bows for thread to string, uh, string on beans and sew dresses. The hair was braided into halters. And finally, the tail was used for a fly brush. That's the whole animal. Not one part of it was wasted. Not one part did they overlook and say, we can't use this for something. In this way, in a similar way, God will use every part of your experiences in life for your blessing, for your good, for your edification, for the conforming of your person to the image of Christ. He doesn't waste a thing. I've been reading through Genesis, and I, I hear that a number of uh, Itaewon brothers and sisters are reading through Genesis and Exodus these days. People are going for it through the Bible. How many people are reading through the Bible? A bunch of you guys. That's awesome. I'm, I'm, there, I'm behind already, but I'm there with you. Um, I, I'm, yeah, I'm intending to. Uh, but through the book of Genesis... You, you really see how bent on blessing people God is. His people, that is. God is, he, he's bent on blessing his people. You read about Abraham. Abraham was a man richly blessed by God, despite his mistakes, despite his messes. Right? In, in Genesis 12, we've got God calling out Abraham to leave his people leave his home country and go to a land that he was going to show him. In the passage, he says, I'm going to bless you, that you'll be a blessing. 
and I'm going to make you a great nation. Incredible, incredible encounter with God Abraham has in Genesis 12. Later in the same chapter, we find Abraham going down to Egypt because there's a famine in the land. He goes down to Egypt and he gets a bit scared because his wife, Sarai, is really attractive. Like, really attractive. I don't know why. Yeah, she was so attractive that Abraham feared, Abram at the time, feared for his life because he thought that someone, if he said that she's my wife, someone's going to kill me so that they can take her as their wife because he didn't trust the Egyptians, I guess. And he just felt that it was a dangerous situation, completely forgetting that earlier in the chapter, God told him he was going to make him into a great nation. How is he going to be made into a great nation if he's dead? I don't know. (laughs) But he obviously doesn't believe the word of God at this point. And so he lies to the Pharaoh of Egypt and says, she's my sister, which was partially true because she was his half-sister, which is a little bit strange, but that's what people did back then. Uh, And he, but he does deceive Pharaoh and Pharaoh takes her into his home and she becomes his wife and all this disaster breaks out in Egypt and um, Pharaoh and his people. And, um, and Pharaoh comes to Abram later because he, God encounters him and tells him this is what happened and, uh, and gets angry with Abram and tells him to leave, but he leaves with all sorts of blessing. The Pharaoh gives him men servants and maid servants and camels and livestock and sheep and all these things. Abram leaves so blessed after he messes up like that. Now, God doesn't, doesn't condone his sin and his deception, but God just shows through this how intent he is on blessing Abraham regardless of his mess-ups. A few chapters later in Genesis 20, he does the same thing in the land of Gerar to the king of Gerar. His name was Abimelech. The same thing. He's afraid, and, and Sarah's a lot older at this point. So it's, it's a bit strange, but she's like, she's almost 100 years old. And, uh, and so he's afraid again because Sarah's still beautiful. She's so beautiful at 100 years old, or not, it's a bit less than 100 years old. But the, the same thing's going to happen. And so he lies again. And what happens, the same thing happens. He leaves with greater blessing, all the silver that Abimelech lavishes on Abraham despite all of the, the wickedness that, that Abraham acted in, in lying about his, his wife, Sarah. Over and over, the patriarchs, even though they walked in faith, they made a lot of messes, and God continually blessed them. God was bent on blessing him. Isaac did the same thing with his wife, Rebekah, lied about her. Their son, Jacob, his name meant deceiver. The name Jacob, Jacob, meant deceiver, meant swindler. And you know that he, he swindled, in a sense, the birthright out from his brother Esau. And, and later he deceives Laban uh, to an extent while he's working for him there. His life was a life marked by deception, and yet God blessed him richly. God was so bent on blessing Abraham and Isaac and Jacob 
and beloved, we need to understand that we are their children. That all the promises given to Abraham are promises that are yes and amen for us. God is bent on blessing you over and over and over again. Even in situations where we make mistakes and there are significant consequences for our mistakes, God is still setting us up for victory and blessing all the way. Pastor Christian talked about Moses last week and how Moses made this big mistake in trying to uh, trying to defend his fellow countrymen and killing an Egyptian who was beating him at the time, even though he was, he was set up in so many ways to be a, a strong leader for the Israelite people. And he felt like he was doing the right thing at the time by taking charge and, and freeing one of his fellow Israelites from Egyptian tyranny. He ended up having to run away into the wilderness through that mistake he made, through that mess he made. And... It wasn't until later that he realized that it had all been a setup for victory. That he went, he, where he thought that he was prepared for victory when he was about 40 years old when this happened, it wasn't until another 40 years of going through the wilderness, going through being a shepherd, going through a, a humbling experience where God shaped and molded and crafted him into the leader that he desired him to be. And Moses realized God had set all of this up for my blessing, for my good, for my victory. God was set on blessing Moses and blessing his people through Moses. He's always setting people up. You see throughout the whole Old Testament, it's all a setup. God is always setting up his people for victory. Every time, over and over and over and over again. Through your trials, through difficult times, God is setting you up for victory. One of the most interesting statements I find in the book of Judges is, is concerning this. And the book of Judges is, happens, it's right after the book of Joshua. And, you know, Joshua is all about uh, taking the land, possessing the land. The Israelites going in and taking possession of the promised land, fighting all these amazing battles in Jericho. They go up against the city of Jericho with the huge walls and they march around the wall and they yell and they shout and they blow trumpets. The walls come down and they have all of these incredible victories and they're defeating king after king after king after king. They're destroying all these people. An incredible victorious book, the book of Joshua. And then you get to the book of Judges and you find out that not all of the nations who lived there were actually dispossessed by the Israelites. That there were still actually people there that were enemies of Israel. And you might wonder, why, why is that? You know, why, after all these incredible wars, did God allow for there to be enemies living in their midst, even in the promised land? And the answer is in Judges 3. And I want you to turn quickly to Judges chapter 3 to read this for yourself. Judges chapter 3, looking at verses 1 and 2. 
It says, now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. I find that a highly interesting statement. That the only reason... After Israel had taken possession of the land that had been promised to them, this land flowing with milk and honey, the land of promise, after they had taken possession of that, the only reason that God let his enemies live among them was so that they would have people to fight against in the future. Do you find find that interesting? I want to submit to you tonight that the only reason there are trials in your life is because God is teaching you to warfare. This is, this is the only reason beloved. We are a victorious people. The the enemy has already conquered. He is defeated foe. So why do we still have trials in our life? Because God wants to build up each and every one of you. Because he wants to edify and bless every single one of you. Because he wants to conform every one of you to the image of his son, Jesus. And he will not relent until that is accomplished. He will not relent until your righteousness shines like the dawn. So he allows trials in your life. Because when I I look back on my life, I realize that at times when I grew the most were the most difficult times. And I hear that in people's lives over and over and over again. That time was so difficult, but it was the time that I grew the most. I experienced the most grace. I experienced the most blessing, the most change in my life. I think back to one of the times I think back to is just the past three years for myself and for Pastor Marcus and for Pastor Myunghwa, being full-time students at Torch Trinity Seminary. We were all studying what's called Master of Divinity, and and the three of us just graduated in December. But the Master of Divinity is, is supposed to be one of the most difficult degrees you can ever take. Because really, it's, it's a master's of, of everything for the church. That's the way it's designed. It's not a master's of theology. It's not a master's of education or any of these things. It's a master's of what they call divinity. Who knows exactly what that means, master divinity. I have master divinity because I'm now a master of divinity. But what what they're intending to do is make you as ready as possible for ministry. So what do they do? They put you through the ringer. They make, they make your life difficult. Honestly, I had never heard a professor say this, like outright say this, until our final chapel this last semester. The president of the school is speaking in the chapel last semester and says, I understand that for you graduating students, it's been a difficult three years, but we do this intentionally. We do this so that you are challenged beyond what you think you can bear, beyond what you think you can handle. Because once you have handled this, 
you are more ready to take on ministry that God gives you in the future. We are putting you through the ringer. And people who study at seminary, their lives, it's not like very, very few people are just seminary students. They are husbands. They are wives. They are fathers. They are mothers. They're already pastors. They're jundosas, which is like harder. You know, in a Korean church, it's no joke being a jundosa, right? They, uh, they will work you and work you and work you. And beyond that, people have, you know, personal issues that they go through, difficult times with their family, difficult times with all sorts of things. And yet the school, although they are gracious, they don't relent that much. And they say, basically they say, you need this. And we are God's instrument to make you suffer so that you will come out purified, refined as gold, you know? And that's their heart for us. That is their heart for us, that we would get through that and be stronger people beyond it. Even as Pastor Christian studies Greek, the Greek intensive course is probably the most intense thing I've ever done in terms of school in my life. And having come through that, what I realize more than anything else, if I can do this, I can do anything in school. And they do this. They intentionally put these things in there for pastors and future pastors to challenge and strengthen and grow them. And beloved, you need to know that God is fully overseeing every trial that you are in. He will never give you something beyond what you can handle. Never. He is, has the, everything fully in control. He is a God you can trust. Even in terms of temptation, the only reason that temptation is in your life, that God allows that to happen, is so that you would be taught to warfare. Because you've already defeated, the enemy is defeated, he's under your feet. But God is going to allow for things to come into your life. He's not going to stop them. And he's going to show you to warfare. He's going to show you to fight over and over and over again until you get stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. And God is overseeing the whole process. 1 Corinthians 10 says, it says, uh, what does it say? 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10 says, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be, be tempted beyond what you can bear so that you can hold up from under it. You can hold up under it. No temptation has seized you except what's common to other people. But God will always provide the way out for that temptation. God is always setting you up for victory. He's always setting you up for blessing. He's always setting you up for favor. Every time, all the way. This is why, why sonship is so important in the church. Because if you can trust that God is your perfect father... And that he won't let you be, be tempted beyond what you can bear. And he's always going to provide you a way out, an escape route, when you're tempted. Beloved, if, if you really believe that, if you really believe that 
God is working everything for your good, the world becomes a beautiful place. Because fear evaporates like that. If you fully believe, if you, if you enter into that revelation that God is your father, he is holding you, and he's not going to let anything happen to you beyond what you can bear, but everything that happens to you, he will use for your blessing and your increase. The world is a beautiful place. Because you're safe in the truest sense of the word. You're fully safe. I think about children you see at swimming pools and, and how their, their father, their mother is inside the pool and they learn to jump into the arms. We've probably all seen this. They learn to jump into the arms of their parents. And at first, they're, they're not too sure if they can do it safely, so they're pretty worried and they get really nervous at the edge. And, and they, you know, they eventually, if, if they work up the courage to do so, they'll jump into the arms of their father. And when they're caught, they realize, wow, that's not too bad. And the second time they do it, they're still a little bit anxious about it, but they jump sooner than that. And the third time and the fourth time and the fifth time, it gets easier and easier and easier for them to trust their father. Because they've experienced that they're completely safe in their father's arms. And I, I see this, uh, there's a friend of mine in Canada who takes this to the extreme, or he took it to the extreme when his son was young. His son, what, what he would do is he would do like, these acrobat stunts, basically, with his like, two-year-old son. He, this, he was a pastor, and he used, to, he used to do things like he would take his son, and he would hold up both feet like this. He'd like, hold him right up in the air like that, and then he'd like, throw him up and catch him. I'm like, how can you do that to your son, you know? And, and he'd like, he'd like, he'd do crazy, like, things I'd never seen a father do before. Like, if, if someone's, they would, they would think it was child abuse. You know, if, if child and family services saw it, they would remove that child from his presence. Because he would do things that, you know, he would flip his child upside down. He would, like, catch him. And, but the son thought it was awesome. He thought it was the most incredible. And he was like, more. Let's do it again. Again, let's do more. And he was, he, fear was completely removed from him because he trusted his father to catch him every time. There was no fear for him. And this kid has grown up fearless. I've never seen such a fearless kid in my life. And this fear is translated into evangelism in his schools. As kids, he's, a, he's an element. Uh, he must be like grade five, grade six or something by now. And he'll, he'll just go up and share the gospel to people because he knows his, his father backs him up. You know, he fears he's going to be an evangelist. He already is, you know. If you trust that your father is catching you, all fear is removed and you're free. You are free to serve. You are free to make mistakes. Because you know that your father has you every single time. God is always setting you up for victory. Beloved, he is for you. God has no interest in your life not growing, in your ministry not growing, in your influence at work not growing, in your influence in school not growing. The kingdom is all about growth. 
all of these parables that Jesus tells, it's growth, 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 growth. The kingdom of heaven is like a seed. The kingdom of heaven is, is like, he uses seeds a lot. And it's, it's different plants. It's a mustard seed. It's, it's seeds planted in a field. It's always growth. The kingdom is always about growth. Your lives as kingdom lives are always about growth. One of the most important things I learned when I was facilitating the Song of Songs uh, SBS last year, the most, by far, the most important lesson I learned as I was facilitating that study is that the kingdom standard for marriages is growth. As simple as that. That the world would say for marriages and for relationships that lead to marriage, that they cool off over time. Right? The world will say eventually spouses will get tired of each other and it's okay to divorce and it's okay to you know, have affairs and that sort of thing because that's just the way things are. You, know? you get tired of each other after a while. But the kingdom standard is always growth in love, growth in communication, growth in blessing each other, growth in understanding each other, growth as one together. The kingdom is always about growth. In your workplace, the kingdom is always about growth and influence. In your school, it's always about growth. It's always about growth among your friends, in your social circles. It's always about growth. And God is setting you up for that victory. Beloved, God is for you. He is for you all the way. Now, let's, let's take some time to pray. Father, we thank you for your commitment and your devotion to us. We thank you for being for us, God, for promising never to leave us and never to forsake us, for promising in your word that you will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear, for promising in your word to provide a way out in the face of temptation so that we can stand up under it, We thank you, Father, for not wasting anything in our lives. Not one piece, not one situation, not one experience. Have you ever wasted or will you ever waste? I pray that you would stir that truth in this room right now. Father, in, in deep, deep ways, Lord, that you are for us, God. that you are with us. I want us to just take a minute now to receive that truth. 
that everything in your life right now is a setup. Whatever might seem or feel like a setback is always, always a setup. Father, I ask you to release revelation right now into people's situations and circumstances, God, to see your hand at work, to see the ways in which you are moving, God, for the glory of your name and the increase in our lives, Father. Open our eyes to see.